Titan spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system. Hello and welcome to the 216th annual Subliminal Session Podcast, the weekly dose of conspiracy theory. Bullshit, my name is Cody. I'm your pal Phil. How are you? Doing good, buddy. How about yourself? Not doing too bad. Um, I want to ask you something real quick, and I'm sure you probably have experience with this as well. I was playing with my nephew, you know, playing in the yard, catching balls, whatever. And I woke up and my lower back and my abdominal muscles are now... <laughs> tender sometimes you kind of forget how old you're getting yeah definitely that uh they have a lot of energy and yeah. they basically can just sap it right out of you so <laughs> it's not until you get to be in your like 50s or 60s that you start sapping the energy out of them like being around little kids makes you energetic like uh you see it with like grandparents they'll almost gain like new life when they have a you know a toddler grandchild yeah. but uncles and aunts no it just takes it right out of you yeah ah uh, well in about 12 years we'll be there phil and then we can get those <laughs> little shits energies <laughs> definitely yeah even when i so i had nieces and nephews way back even like when i was a teenager and they would sap the energy out of me at that age. Like, <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. You just never say. It's pretty crazy. Just never say. Yeah. They, yeah. All right. They're a lot of fun, but they're a lot of work. Just yeah. keeping them alive and keeping them, you know, not bored. Yeah. Bless you. Off. Bless you, parents out there. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I had a, I had a quick story. It's actually about, uh, it's a, child not as uh not as young as the one you're talking about so one of the white trash children who lives <laughs> in my apartment complex decided that he's going to start riding his bike around the parking lots around the complex and as cars are coming in and out of the parking lot he's going to kind of like ride right in front of them like as they're coming at him uh you know like daredevil shit trying to do that so he's been terrorizing the neighborhood for about a week <laughs> i thought you were gonna honestly i thought you were gonna say he ran his bike into your car like when it was parked or something no he tried to brag about it too as i was walking by i i pulled in and he didn't get me but he got the person behind me and he rode up as i was walking out of my car and he's like i juked the car behind you and i was like did you just say you hit the car behind you he's like no you probably don't know what the word juke means. I was like, <laughs> I know what it means. He's like, it means when you figure someone out. It's like, what the fuck? I, I know what juke means, you know? Um, What you should have done is been like, okay, hey, tell you what, buddy. Why don't you show me how fast you can ride your bike <laughs> right by me, okay? And then as he's doing it, just fucking clothesline his ass off the bike. <laughs> I mean, hey, yeah, I know what juke means, you little shit. <laughs> That's actually pretty good. Or just 
give him the Hulk Hogan, just the <laughs> the big kick, the big boot. <laughs> right and, then a, chest. and then a fucking, That'd be great. A, a fucking atomic leg drop right on top of his ass. <laughs> so how old is this kid now? I don't know. He's like, uh, he's, he's got that uh, that white trash fat to him. So I have no idea. He could be either fucking seven or 14. Who knows? Okay. Yeah, it's hard to I, between there. Hard to age him uh, at that. <laughs> Judging by the cockiness of him, I'm guessing he's probably around ten. That's when they yeah, start probably to get, around ten or eleven. That's when they start to get that first like kind of attitude, I guess. Oh yeah, definitely. But uh, anyway, Phil, let's go ahead and get into this week's episode. Are you ready? Yeah, let's hit it. On this week's episode of Sub D, we will be talking about one of the most tragic workplace disasters in American history, a story that most of our uh, fans have probably learned about in history class, but I kind of want to dive into the full details, maybe dispel some of the myths, and perhaps question if the owners of the company might have intended for this fire to happen. Now... I mean, obviously, we kind of like to be suspenseful before we get in the episode, but then you kind of forget that usually the title of what we're talking about is on on the on the episode. You know what I mean? But uh, we are talking about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Um, I remember learning about this in high school, I believe. Do you as well? Yeah, so... Obviously, um, most people learn about it in high school. I learned about it in a couple of different classes in college, uh, kind of when we were going over like progressive era stuff. It was a it's a pretty big um, incident that kind of led to a lot of reforms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as we're going to find out, uh, it wasn't fun being a worker in the early 1900s. No, definitely not. <laughs> no matter what age you were. No, no, not even not. A, not even like a like a nine or ten year old. No, definitely not. No, at least we can say you know, I this place, the youngest employee was fourteen, so we got to give them a little credit, Phil. Yeah, hopefully it's not because all the children that they used to employ lost all their hands in the loom <laughs> previously. It could be. I don't know. <laughs> Now, as I mentioned, the subject is going to be all about the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. Um, but before we get too deep into that, I kind of want to focus on the owners, kind of the men, I would say are ultimately pretty responsible for this whole thing. So let's talk about them a little bit. They were two men by the name of Max. I believe this is blank, but it's spelled B-L-A-N-C-K. But it, mm -hmm. I, that's the only way you can say his last name, right? Yeah. And uh, the other gentleman is Isaac Harris. A little, a little easier to say. Now, both men, we don't know the exact birthday, but they were born sometime in the late 1800s in Russia and immigrated to the United States in the 1890s alongside thousands of other Jewish immigrants. So there must have been kind of, I don't know much about this, but there must have been kind of a mass exodus uh or exodus of jewish people leaving russia coming to the united states yeah so there was um quite a few uh obviously you know the kind of you know led up to what happened in world war ii there was a, a ton of um 
cities in Europe and kind of all around the world, really, that were, you know, pretty horrible to Jewish people, forcing them to live in ghettos, that kind of thing. And yeah, Russia kind of every once in a while, they would run little like programs where they would kind of expel their Jewish people. So a lot of a lot of uh, people emigrated to the United States at that point, too, in history from everywhere of all walks of life, just, uh, you know, opportunities and whatnot. So, yeah, it sounds like um, there's a lot of Italians that must have came over around this time. And obviously we talked about the Irish population that flooded over here, uh, you know, not too much earlier than this as well. So the United States is kind of experiencing just a mass influx of population oh definitely yeah it's uh it, huge waves from like one part of you know like europe or asia that sort of thing so uh they they kind of come in waves um now you know it's kind of from all over the world but yeah uh big time waves coming in from um eastern europe sent like you know central europe from germany uh at different points too so just a lot of people coming now, what I think is really interesting about these two guys is they didn't even know who each other was when they first came to the United States. They had no idea. It would actually take quite a few years for the two of them to meet. Um, from what I gathered, Isaac Harris, he's kind of the one who had the tailoring experience. He worked in the immigrant sweatshops when he first arrived here. This gave him kind of the knowledge of how to create the latest and greatest in popular fashion at the time. As we'll find find out, is basically a direct copy of all the Victorian era fashion that was happening across the Atlantic Ocean over in Great Britain and was now in very high demand in the United States. So as you can see, they're going to figure out how to fill this perfect void for the desire for a certain garment in America. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm not too spun up on the history of fashion, uh, not even uh, modern fashion. I'm a blue jeans and black t-shirt kind of fella. But yeah, I do know that kind of up until the like 60s and 70s, um, big time fashion really did come from Europe. So especially London. So I can imagine that uh, a lot of the kind of architecture too was copied from europe and that sort of thing yeah a uh, even in modern time like a beautiful victorian style home which generally is associated with a very old house uh in the united states is you know a high highly desirable thing um and i think you made a mistake phil there was another british invasion in the 50s 60s and 70s with those fucking beatles Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, them sons of bitches, they invaded again. The British Bulldog, of course. Yeah, yeah, and the British Bulldog, (laughs) the worst of them all. (laughs) Yeah, he he loved body slamming people and doing crack. Yeah, what else could a man ask for? Now, as with Max Blank, he's a little more interesting because he's more of the quote-unquote businessman of the two. Um, he apparently was what you would call a garment contractor. Um, he would basically purchase cheaper cloth in higher volumes from large manufacturers and then kind of 
produce it into whatever garment that he wanted or was in style at that time, I guess. So basically, this yeah. would allow him to sell the garments at cheaper prices than the competitors. So I, it was kind of confusing if he just buys like the cloth in mass quantities and then gives it to a shop and is like, hey, make this for me. That's kind of what it sounded like, but I'm not entirely sure on that. Now, how these two men would actually come to meet was Isaac Harris would marry one of Max Blank's cousins in the late 1890s, and at some point, they crossed paths and decided to team up because they got the tailor and they got the businessman, and they're going to combine forces to create quite the empire. Okay, kind of a uh, Steve Jobs Wozniak kind of relationship there, where uh, one guy's the idea man, one guy's the, you know, the person who can put it all together. Um, I was gonna say this kind of sounds like what we would know as like fast fashion type shit we have today, uh, like H and M. Basically, they you know use the the cheapest shittiest fabric to make clothes that barely survive like being through the washer twice. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. And yeah. they copy, you know, I guess um what's I don't know, I don't want to say celebrities, but they kind of mimic fashion show shit and stuff like that. Yeah. Kind of like the knockoff industry almost. The sad part uh, is it's prop H and M probably is more toxic for the environment than all of these <laughs> fucking sweatshops. And I'm not even exaggerating about that that the fast fashion industry we got to cover it one day but it is horrible yeah we have i believe we talked about it in the recycling episode possibly a little bit uh they do have a program where they ask you to bring in your old uh h&m clothes to be recycled that kind of thing you can recycle that old fabric into like you know insulation for houses and buildings and and whatnot other products if but they yeah, actually most do of their it. clothes just ends up in dumpsters yeah and out in fucking you know <laughs> landfills and shit like that it's horrible and it uh it's not really strong enough to make it to a thrift store you know because it's in shambles by the time we want to donate it yeah by the time you're done with it it would look like uh, a homeless person would pass up on pretty much <laughs> once it's been through the washer about four or five times there's there's just nothing left of it yeah try to give a homeless man or woman a h&m bag they're gonna be like no thank you that's not gonna get me anywhere <laughs> definitely yeah <laughs> now with the perfect greedy duo now together in the 1900s they would found triangle waste company now a lot of times you'll hear Triangle Shirtwaist Company, and that's kind of because of what they make. But they would open their first place of business. I'm just going to call it a place of business on Wooster Street, which is someplace in New York City. I'm not really sure where. Now, initially, uh, this first textile operation was set up in a rather small location, which they don't say for sure, but it's more than likely... Nothing more than a dimly lit apartment. And make no mistake, it was most certainly a sweatshop. And sweatshops were so popular during this time, it was even given an exact definition in in 1895 as, quote, an employer 
who underpays and overworks his employees, especially a contractor for a piecework in the tailoring trade. So doesn't that sound fun, guys? Oh, definitely. Yeah, we would call that uh, cottage industry, I believe, <laughs> the uh, the polite term for it, something like this. But yeah, uh, workers' rights, basically non-existent at the time. Um, you know, it was a free-for-all, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Coming up on the end of, not even the end, the late middle of the robber baron era, it was every, you know, everyone was trying to get a piece. So that sort of thing. And just like uh, modern day, only a few people actually do get a piece. Um, They said in New York, just to get an idea, I didn't put this in my notes, but so you had triangle waist and apparently there was, I think they said 10,000 other like sweatshop clothing, you know, places that were competitors to them. So imagine how many <laughs> apartments are kind of around New York City just filled with this shit, which I'm going to kind of talk to you about, like what it would have been like if you were working in this thing. Um, like I said, we don't know for sure if it was an apartment this first place, but it almost had to be just for kind of a startup operation simply because it was so easy to just get or typically what they did rent a three-room apartment okay yep. and they would set up three probably three or so sewing machines um they would then employ as many as 30 workers they would rotate the workers in and out and the workers were also required to use the bathroom in the apartment sleep in the apartment they would be working anywhere from 15 to 18 hours a day usually somewhere around 80 hours a week. So you're basically going to bed, waking up, sewing shit or putting shit together, going to bed, getting up, working again. And at this time, I think they got 10 to $15 a week, I believe is the yep. pay. So it's not that great. That would be for the, for the uh, what, before 1900, that would actually be good is um like ten dollars a week uh i think ford when he jumped his pay up to what was it like four or five dollars a day everyone was pissed off because it was like such a huge bump in pay and that was like 30 years after this yeah i'm pretty sure i mean i'm going off once triangle gets the second location um their workers were getting between 10 to 15 dollars a week i believe it said so this keep in mind though it's like 1906ish I believe so you know it could have fluctuated in there in pay I mean okay yeah the bad thing too is once they move out of the sweatshop and get a little bit you know a uh, little bit better digs you know a real factory that mentality of working someone to death doesn't go away no you know? absolutely now you're working yeah. 700 people to death yeah. rather than 30 yeah it And it's interesting kind of how the sweatshops were so successful. Apparently, they never fully employed any of the workers. They most of them were considered, quote unquote, subcontracted. So what this I'm not kidding you. So what this meant is they could keep wages down and this insured employees had zero rights. They would make people work harder 
pay lower wages, and they were kind of feeding off the mass cheap immigrant labor that was coming into the country, kind of like we alluded to. So their ultimate goal was always to sell the product cheaper than the competition, which meant hurting the employees. And even though the employees were making a lot of money, the owners of the company most certainly were making a lot of money. And as we're about to find out, that is especially true for Triangle Waste Company. Yeah, the whole subcontractor game, uh, basically like dangling that carrot out for a full-time job in front of uh, overworked and underpaid (laughs) employees, or not even employees. They're not even... They're not employees of uh, of even them. Um, I can just I was thinking about it. 30 workers inside of a three bedroom apartment uh, living there, working there. That place had to be pretty rank during the summer. Yeah, stink. Like, I don't even know how these people ate because there was a little thing that showed almost like a diagram and where the living room and stuff was supposed to be. It was just nothing but sewing opera because it seemed like they'd have a sewing station then a station that kind of put the pieces of the shirt together and then someone who sewed the buttons on so it was like you know a whole there's little stations everywhere to get a piece of um you know clothing made so they needed a lot of people to do it yeah the bad thing too is uh there was no child care at this time and if there was no one could so a lot of times they would bring their kids in and what are their kids going to do all day? Well, they can work a little too. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they, they can do things like carry things around, pick shit up off the floor, do that kind of stuff. But they don't get paid like an adult gets paid who's working just as hard as they are. So they're only getting like, you know, a fraction of what even their parents are getting who are getting underpaid like crazy. And be like, little Timmy, take over for mommy. My fingers are bleeding. <laughs> I need a five minute, <laughs> five minute break here. Yeah, pretty much. And then all of a sudden, oh, look, he sews just as well. Put him on there for <laughs> 30% fired. of what her, his mom made. Yeah, you're fired. Don't come back here. Leave the kid here. <laughs> leave the kid, though. Yeah, yeah leave the kid. <laughs> now, what would prove to make Triangle Waste Company so successful? And, you know, you kind of see this happen with a lot of businesses is they wedge themselves into the perfect market at the perfect time. And in New York City, there was a fashion item that people just could not get enough of. And that was the shirt waist. Now, the shirt waist was styled as a piece of Victorian era menswear, but it was designed for women instead and was sold at a relatively relatively cheap price. This is what all the website said. It was, you know, between... I think it was like a dollar to three dollars, depending on where you got it, you know. And with the government inflation calculator, okay, keep in mind this is the government one, so it might not work. That is apparently ninety three dollars and fifty eight cents in today's money, which seems kind of kind of high, but apparently this was modest for the time. But also, mm. we gotta consider they might wear this item for like three months straight. You know what I mean? <laughs> Oh yeah, definitely. They're they're beating the brakes off of these clothes. Yeah, and so. on, honestly, I bet they lasted pretty long. Like, let's be real. You take an H and M shirt and you take this shirt. I bet this shirt lasts way longer. 
Yeah, most likely. Um, this also kind of looks like a shirt that you wouldn't really wear to if you had like a factory job, or you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't wear this shirt while you were sewing this shirt. No, this looks like maybe it's your nice shirt. But you know, if you think about all the you know black and white pictures of America from like early 1900s, um, I swear to God, almost every woman is wearing this shirt, usually with like a a blazer thing over top of it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, definitely. And every dude walking around, even dudes who are walking to like construction jobs, were wearing like a three piece suit. Yeah, you know, with the with uh, you know, the coat and the dress shoes and fucking like they're working in that stuff. Yeah, so they would go and put their overalls on over. But you and know. you know, lucky them, the job didn't really really require them to you know take a shower or anything. So. <laughs> They could just <laughs> do whatever they wanted. Yeah. Mouthwash hadn't even been invented yet. The, <laughs> the know, disease halitosis hadn't come around. If you were No one a- had bad breath. Halitosis <laughs> hadn't been invented yet. Let's be real, Phil. Let's say you're it's a Saturday night, you're at the bar, right? You know, you're you got your buzz going on, you're feeling good. You see a chick wearing this come in, um, you're gonna assume she's a vampire of some kind. Oh, yeah. Well, you can see chicks wearing this shit now. Go on Instagram. It's all over the place. And not just for role playing or cosplay. It's mostly the cosplay stuff. Okay. But some of them wear it out in public. The Victorian dress type shit. With that really, usually with an umbrella and like a really tiny mm-hmm. hat. <laughs> yeah. And they have the palest skin you've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. Them. yeah. That's the ones. <laughs> now, there's another item that really helped. Triangle Shirtwaist Company kind of go over the top, and I'm sure a lot of companies use this as well. And that was when the mechanical sewing machine kind of became more affordable for them to put them in factories or businesses or whatever. Um, Compared to them sewing by hand, they could do it five times faster with the mechanical sewing machine. So because of the initial success... If they started in 1900, 1901, by 1902, they moved the company to a much larger factory, um, which was located on the ninth floor of the brand new, at the time, Ash Building on the corner of Washington Square in Greenwich Village, Manhattan. By 1906, Triangle Waste Company would end up expanding the company to both the eighth and the ninth floors. So they got two whole floors for their factory within, you know, four years of moving here. That's how big they have gotten so far. Yeah, expanding like crazy. I would also say, too, that the mechanical so made it so that uh, less experienced people could be making these clothes. Like, the you wouldn't be, need to be as skilled. If you were doing it by hand, you'd need to be very skilled. This meant that basically anyone could come in and in a short amount of time, you could teach them how to, you know, just basically follow the pattern pretty much. Can you imagine if these two fuckers got their hands on, like someone traveling time just gave them like robotic uh, sewing machines. They'd be so happy. They wouldn't have to pay anybody. They could just <laughs> make fucking shirts and make a lot of money. Yeah, that would... uh <laughs> I'm trying to think what they would do. They would probably put everyone out on their ass, except for just a couple of people that they needed to feed the machines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Just like companies do now, pretty much. That True. Fully 
fully automate like that. I saw a video of a fully robotic AI, I think it's AI controlled, like cooking thing, cooking setup. And yes. it basically will like cook whatever you want for it, but you have to load the trays with the items, which is almost as much work as just doing it yourself. But um, it made it look like shit. And this chick's eating it and she's like, God, this is good. And I'm like, I don't know, man. It looks a little sketchy. That looks, yeah, I saw the exact same uh, thing on Instagram. Um, you may have sent it to me. Okay, I them. It was like a pasta dish. Yes, yes, yes. It looked like it was made with zero love. Also, they cooked the new. They cooked the noodles right in there with the water and the meat. It didn't look good. Well, you think for a hamburger helper, you're supposed to do that? Ah, I don't know about that. You get, you at least want to get them started, but that's neither. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I know exactly what you meant. Um, it looked like she did as much work to load the machine as if she would have just cooked it herself. Honestly, that's my new favorite handle that like New York chef making fun of all these TikTok people cooking their weird ass dishes. I really I it makes me laugh a lot. But uh, (laughs) yeah. Oh, I was also going to say, too, that robot looks like it's a bitch to clean. Yeah. Yeah. If it was a self cleaning one, too, then I think you'd have the real deal. But you got to clean all that shit, too. Yep. Everything. Now, their factory in 1906 was about 27,000 square feet of workspace. They had hundreds of sewing machines that had people working on them from anywhere between 12 to 15 hours per day. Isaac Harris specifically, listen to this motherfucker, he specifically had the machines laid out in such a way that did not allow the workers to communicate with each other, which in his mind would increase production. They would employ about 500 workers by 1906, all of which were were from the burgeoning female workforce that was kind of entering in the early 1900s. Most of the women who worked at Triangle uh, were age ranged 14 to early 20s. They said not, not much beyond that. And almost none of them spoke English, L- very little to no English. I don't know if that was by design or if that was all who's available. Yeah, so I don't know. Um, I did learn a little bit about um, I had a hi- history of business class and there's kind of a big push. I don't know if you've ever heard of Levittown. They had all these little Levittowns spring up um, during the 1800s, I believe. Uh-uh. One of the big one of the big sources of work were farm girls. Basically, they would go around to these small farming villages and recruit their um, the farmers' daughters to come work. And they would basically say, like, "Oh, we're going to give them, um, you know, uh, religious train, religious education, um, education on how to be a good wife, that sort of thing." And they're going to work and send you home a little money too. Uh, basically, like a pre-marriage, something to do with your daughter before she. You know, you married her off. That's kind of what this sounds like. So that sort of thing. Was it was it kind of like what I'm getting from what you're saying is like they almost tricked the farmers into thinking they're doing something good for their daughters. But it's actually like signing them up for almost slave labor. Pretty much signing them up for slave labor was the uh, I mean, they most of the money was going home to the parents, which was little money at all. Um, They had to what little money that the women did get, uh, they would have to spend on um, like 
their own food. They would have to spend rent because they would be forced to live in those tenements, that sort of thing. Uh, they would make them go to church on, you know, certain nights of the week, make them do like religious kind of uh, classes, that sort of thing. Uh, they weren't, you know, there was a curfew. So they only had like a couple of hours of personal time. And, you know, they worked them fucking pretty hard. So, you know what? It's a sad thing to say, Phil, but I guarantee there is a chunk of the male population that wishes women would still do that so they could become a quote unquote perfect wife. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, the uh, the red pill dudes. Yeah. Fucking red <laughs> pill dudes, man. Jesus Christ. Fucking insane people. Yeah. Not getting laid really does drive them crazy, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes it does. Now, by 1908, Isaac and Max had just crossed the $1 million in sales mark. The factory was making about a 1,000 shirtwaists a day, which is an insane amount of garments for the time period. Also, mm -hmm. with the growth of the company, they would purchase the 10th floor of the Ash Building, giving the company the 8th, 9th, and 10th floor, although this new third floor would mostly be administrative services, the administrative offices, things like that. Uh, the company was so big, Isaac Harris and Max Blank were given the nicknames Shirtwaist Kings and were viewed as the quintessential successful American businessmen who lived extremely lavish lives as compared to the employees who were living in poverty, um, they said these two guys were some of the first people to get, I think, the Model A or the Model T. I don't remember which one it was, but they were so rich. They were one of the first people to ever have a fucking automobile. Yeah, I, I'm thinking it's a little early for the Model T. Um, cars back then were kind of um, almost like... You you didn't make them in a factory. You made them in a small shop and like yeah. craftsmen kind of made them, you know. It wasn't what we think of as like a factory setting. No. It was like instead of a, a you know, a building full of people making a car, it was like maybe two or three dudes who were, you know, extremely uh very good at their jobs. You know. Yeah. And it was, you know, they were luxury pieces, these vehicles. So I imagine it's one of those guys. I just want to state how opposite of a lives the workers and the <laughs> the owners lived. It be, you know it was just you know unfat. I mean, obviously we see it today too, but uh, but yeah, they were getting chauffeured around a lot, and they were talking about how many fucking wait ma uh, maids and all this other shit they had in their house, and yeah, it was uh, they were living the high life. Oh, definitely too. And the people who kind of worked as like administrators, the the office types, uh, they were probably making a, a semi decent wage, but it's as compared to like their the floor employees. You like now you have people who you know maybe clean the floors or do the kind of like maid service deals. Um, who make more money in comparison back then to some of the most important people in the factory. Yeah. Like the people who actually like work and stuff. So even the people who had like jobs in the offices weren't making very much money. Basically, unless you had a stake in the company, you weren't making shit back then. Well, here's the other thing. Like I said, 
um, probably all the floor workers were subcontracted. They were probably yep. fresh, you know, freshly immigrated to the United States. They had no nowhere else to turn. And this might have been their only option. You know what I mean? Yeah. Some of the big actually trade unions came from. Um, so there was kind of a, a little bit of with all the people coming in from Europe, there was a bit of a, like a segregation of like what kind of work certain people from different countries would do uh some of the first trade groups were actually german immigrants because they didn't want to be kind of they like their expertise and their skills they wanted to kind of keep that amongst themselves so like some of the better paying jobs they would you know get and then give each other that sort of thing and then yeah. the irish they would you know they give them the shitty jobs that sort of thing <laughs> well in this company it said most of the workers were either Jewish or Italian. So they were okay. like that. They said those were like the two nationalities of workers here, which to be honest, it kind of feels bad when you got two owners who were Jewish immigrants preying on more Jewish immigrants. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's the American way. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> that is very true, Phil. Now, as the Industrial Revolution kind of continued on, the treatment of workers in the early 1900s would, you know, kind of like Phil said, it's it's becoming a little bit of a hot button issue. Uh, workers' rights, fair pay, the creation of unions were always a big fear of any greedy businessman during the time. In 1909, the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union and the Women's Trade Union League were beginning to kind of get gain, gain traction in America. Uh, people were feeling a bit galvanized by them. So the women employed with Triangle Waste Company would begin to strike demanding less hours and more pay. Of course, Max Blank and Isaac Harris were staunchly anti-union, and it, this was mostly because it would affect their wealth. That's all they really cared about. So instead yeah. of just paying better wages, they hired police officers to harass beat and even arrest the protesting women and paid off any local politicians just so they'd go ahead and look the other way while they were doing this very clearly illegal thing. Uh, the strike would eventually last so long that it was hurting Max and Isaac's bottom line. So ultimately, they did give in to slightly less working hours and slightly more pay, but no union was allowed in their factory. So they did get a little bit, not much, just a little bit. Just enough to, yeah, get them off of to the, shut the strike up. line. Yeah, to shut them up. To shut them up. Yeah, the uh, one of the big things back then was uh, like these paid police forces, basically <laughs> like the Pinkertons yeah. um, were yeah. a big one too. Uh, they were, you know, uh, paid bullies pretty much to come in and break up strikes um like militias and they would accidentally fire on or they would feel threatened and fire on striking groups of people um that was actually one of the big things that started changing um the situation was news of a lot of these kind of like slaughters would come out um so that kind of changed things uh, it was kind of coming to the like we were talking about before like the robber baron era kind of led into this progressive era because it, it swung so much in one direction that it had to come back around eventually. You don't think Elon Musk, um, Jeff Bezos, 
whoever don't doesn't wish they could shoot their employees complaining about wages. I'm pretty sure Bezos probably could shoot as it felt like. <laughs> they were showing <laughs> they were showing how much uh like Elon Musk's net worth is compared to other people in the top 1% and basically it was, you know, insane like how much money and power he had. So I'm pretty sure if he felt like it he probably could shoot someone. This is very true. Well, if it was Elon Musk, you probably just like kill him and launch him into space. I mean, you never get to find their body up there. Hire them to work in one of his Amazon factories. <laughs> yeah. Earn his one of his Tesla factories. Yeah. They'd be uh they'd be killed by one of the robots. Yeah. I saw something. He was gonna name his next child this is Elon Musk, by the way, like techno futurists or some shit like that. See, Ser- I'm, I'm yes. dead serious. Some weird thing that a person with too much money <laughs> calls their kid. <laughs> I think that kid will be signing up for a name change, name change at some point in his life. <laughs> yeah. Now, another big thing that was kind of gaining traction um, outside of just, you know, workers pay, workers workload was the actual safety of the employees. As no surprise, in a garment factory with the amount of cloth around, a fire can very quickly spread out of control. Uh, You know, in modern times, we, I mean, I assume most people at a job have escape plans specifically laid out in an event of a disaster just to kind of get out of the building. But in the early 1900s, this was a completely optional practice for the factories and Triangle Waste Company most certainly did not have one at all. Also, there was kind of the automated sprinkler systems that had been invented. And today, we can't imagine a workplace not having them. But Isaac and Max, they felt that any regulations requiring sprinkler systems were nothing more than hogwash. They claim that the sprinklers were, quote, cumbersome and costly. There's also a quote in the Herald newspaper from one of these two. I don't know which one. And they said this about sprinklers, quote, sprinklers amounted to confiscation of property and that it operates in the interest of a small coterie of automatic sprinkler manufacturers to the exclusion of all others. So they're basically saying the sprinklers are nothing more than a scam made yeah. made up by the sprinkler companies. <laughs> it's just a fad. Yeah. Nobody's going to buy these things. They don't even work. Yeah, no. Nah, nah. In a few years no one will have one. It, it's all going out. Just yeah. like the internet. No one uses the internet. That's <laughs> yeah. just a fad. <laughs> you know what? I will give them credit though and I will talk about this Phil. Um apparently they did have some kind of a fire prevention system. I don't know if you knew this, but they had buckets of water nailed to the walls in the factory. That I swear to God, in this place, they had a few buckets of water nailed to the wall, and that was to put out fires. That'll do it. Yep. Good. Yep. We're good. Yep. Get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, you cannot be fucking serious. I mean, I guess it's better than nothing, but... At least put yeah. a fucking hose or something in there. Yeah, no. It's, uh, God. Yeah, unless you make companies like this, you know, uh, a company that you can call a sweatshop. Think about 
in like foreign countries, kind of where all of the clothes that we wear yeah. get made. Yeah. A lot of those companies are probably the exact same way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I just if no really, one's going to make them put in sprinkle systems, they're not going to have them. It's really sad, you know, that so many companies that we buy, you know, products from, we don't even know. We don't really know where this shit's coming from. We don't know how the employees are being treated. I'm, I always assume it's not good. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. Uh, very exploitative well, practices by a lot of those companies. Um. Uh, and because no one wants to pay the money to have, you know, for clothes that are made in America, they just don't get made anymore, you know. Well, and also the companies got greedy and sent all the production overseas, so. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure people would buy American clothing. It's just um, the the owners don't want it here because then, you know, they they can't exploit people quite as much. It cuts down on their profits. Yeah. Yeah. If they don't have that third beach home, what the fuck? You can't eat. How would you even fucking survive? If I can't buy my third yacht, what am I even doing this for? <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, guys. If you want to be rich, you know, get off your ass and do something. That's my favorite. Yeah. If you want to be rich, also, you're not trying to be rich. Yeah, it's also too. Um, I mean, God, it. People just kind of turn a blind eye to it. It's something you don't even think about when you go to when you go to Target and buy a twenty pack of socks for nine dollars. You don't even think like, oh shit, <laughs> this is like the you know unimaginably cheap thing for how much like effort it took to make all this to ship it here, that kind of stuff. Like it would have to have cost almost nothing to make, which it it didn't cost anything to make really. Yeah, everything you see is usually from what Indonesia. Thailand, uh, let's see, which one am I missing? China. Vietnam. Yeah, Vietnam. And yep. Taiwan sometimes. Like, Taiwan's a lot more computer shit, but... Yeah, yeah. I was going to say Taiwan's big on electronics. Yeah, but I think, I mean, don't quote me, and I'm sorry if I'm saying something wrong, but it seems like Taiwan it has, like, pretty good, you know, uh, workers' rights and, like, a pretty free country and stuff like that, aren't they? I don't know. I know it's a lot different than it is in probably China, I'd imagine. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's why China doesn't like them very much and wants them to become <laughs> a part of China. Well, there's a lot of history there. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. China actually thinks that they are a part of China. Well, so. you know what? They also think that the Dalai Lama can't re be can't reincarnate without their permission. So we'll just say mm, they uh, you've you've heard that, right? Oh, that's coming from uh, when they took over Tibet. Yeah. That they are in control of that now. Yeah. Yeah. Dalai Lama is not allowed to reincarnate without their permission. Now, the final thing we need to talk about before we actually go into detail about the tragedy is how employees would enter and exit from the building. Due to the fact Tri Triangle Waste Company operated on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floor of the building... There were two freight elevators that would obviously carry products up and down, and it would also carry employees up and down between the floors. There was also a stairwell on each floor that would take up to the ground level, pretty common. Um, each floor had a door leading to a fire escape, but these doors were locked at all times. Now, I've heard, and I think it's the common belief that these doors were locked because the owners didn't want to allow the workers to have 
the ability to take breaks, you know, sneak out on them and just yeah. cool off for a second. But apparently this was strictly locked to prevent workers from stealing. If you were a worker at Triangle Waste Company and you got off work and you were trying to go home, you were subject to having your persons searched to make sure you were not stealing product every single day you left the factory. Jesus, it sounds like one of those fucking Colombian cocaine operations (laughs) where they have the chicks who are cutting it up fucking naked. So to make sure (laughs) that they're not trying to steal any uh, coke out of there. Yeah, I've I've heard that the fire escapes were nailed shut. I think I've heard it for I've heard for both reasons uh, so that they wouldn't so that they wouldn't steal and that they wouldn't uh, leave during their shift. Okay, so I read and we'll talk about it. They weren't nailed shut. They were like locked and chained shut. Okay. I had heard that they were nailed shut, but um, there's a lot of different stories out there. I believe I heard it in school that they were nailed shut, but it was, it was in high school. So yeah. Who and, knows? <laughs> and, and don't get it. Don't, you know, for anybody out there, this was a very, very common practice at all businesses to lock all the doors. So people couldn't steal. So, I'm not alleviating them, but at the time, almost every business did this. Um, And another thing, Phil, believe it or not, when I worked at Best Buy, you had to, if you had anything like a book bag or a purse or anything, they had to look through it before you left at the end of your shift every single day. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, Basically, a store with, you know, high, like... There's a lot of high-end merchandise at those Best Buys. You could walk out with a laptop per day in your backpack if you, <laughs> you know, so do you inclined. Th- do you think Amazon makes uh, people or search their shit? I imagine it's just the worst place imaginable to So, probably. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah, I would not doubt that. But, uh, all right. Yeah. Let's get- I, have, I have no clue if they do or don't. Let me I, just say that. I assume but- they do. I would assume they do. Yeah. 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 The date is Saturday, March 25th, 1911, and the time is approximately 4.40 p.m. A fire began to break out in the northeast corner on the eighth floor. It is believed to have been started from materials that were in a scrap bin. Now, like I mentioned There were these buckets of water on the wall, and apparently, allegedly, they attempted to dump the water on the fires, but there were so many scraps just laying underneath the sewing machines that once the fire started, all of that just kind of ignited. You know what I mean? It was just like a tinderbox ready to go off. Ironically, on the 10th floor... Both Isaac Harris and Max Blank, along with their children, were at the factory on this particular day. As the fire continued to grow, people fled the 8th floor and contacted the 10th floor workers who would escape via the rooftop. But for some reason, no one decided to inform the ninth floor workers that there was a fucking fire going on. This is no shit. They didn't tell anybody on the ninth floor that there was fire right underneath them. I imagine Isaac and Max were probably just like, fire's on the eighth floor. 
They're on the ninth floor. Tell them to keep working. Lazy bastards. No breaks. (laughs) Oh, I got a quote from one of them when they're in court, and it is so fucking cringy about uh, him leaving the building. But um, but Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just I I mean, I don't I, I guess you're in such a panic. Maybe you wouldn't think about it. But if you contacted the 10th floor, why would nobody bother to mention, hey, ninth floor employees, you might want to get out of there. I imagine one of the supervisors went and told the <laughs> some of the bigwigs, you know, his bosses, that there was a fire. And then all of a sudden he's like, shit, everyone get out of here. And then just, you know, there wasn't enough bigwigs on the ninth floor, maybe. Yeah. All the bigwigs were in the yeah. top, the tenth floor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not funny because people die. But, you know, it, yeah. the negligence here is just fucking astounding. Now, to keep in mind... There were 200 employees on the ninth floor, but like I said, they didn't even know a fire was happening until smoke began to fill the ninth floor. Uh, When they went to make an escape to the stairwell leading to the street, they found out that was impossible because now that was completely consumed in fire and they could not leave that way. The only other way out was through the locked fire escape or the freight elevators, and the freight elevators could only hold so many people, and they were probably already operating, hauling down the people from other floors, so not a lot of people could get on there. As with the locked door, some accounts say that the workers initially weren't even aware this door was locked, and they were yelling out it's locked when they tried to use it. This is going to remind you of every manager you've ever heard of. The foreman that was on the floor that had the key to that fucking door, he was one of the first ones to get off of the floor and he got out of the building and he still had the key in his pocket and he just <laughs> left the other employees trapped there. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did he, it wouldn't even surprise me if he left out that fire escape and then shut the door behind him. <laughs> Honestly, that wouldn't surprise me yeah. from like this time period. <sighs> My God, I just like, I because my understanding of the workings of the factory, most of the, you know, grunt workers were were women and then the foremen were men. So the only one of the only men on this floor left as fast as he possibly could and just left everybody else there. Pretty much. It kind of it's like that. um, Well, Titanic, uh, when. And during the movie, I don't know if this happened in real life, but when the people who were um, running the ship uh, locked all of the poor people down in steerage, they locked them down so that like they couldn't get out of the boat pretty much yeah. so that they couldn't take seats away from the rich people. Kind of reminds me of that shit. Like th- that was this time. Yeah, for sure. You know that shit would happen. Yeah, uh, I, you're probably going to talk about it uh, eventually. One of the big things that came out of this was doors that opened up to the outside rather than the inside. Did you read uh, a lot about that? Or? No, no, I did not. But they definitely know that they changed the locked door law not long after this. Yeah, it turns out it's a good idea to have fire escapes that yeah. are actually yeah. <laughs> easily easy to escape out of. Yeah. Um, so one of the big laws that kind of got changed out of this tragedy and some other things was doors that open up to the outside. So we kind of take it for granted, um, you know, 
all public buildings, the doors always open to the outside. That's so that if there's a like a crowd of people who rush to the door, that the people behind don't push the people in front into the door, making it like impossible to open. Yeah. If you go to places yeah. in Europe, um, sometimes the doors open to the outside. Sometimes the doors open to the inside. They don't really have laws like that a lot of those countries. So you'll be in a, like walking out of a public building and the door will open to the inside. Like it's a house. So it's a little weird, but I suppose if you have a building old enough, it'd be hard to change that. Yeah. Or there's just no law and they just don't think about it. Yeah. Yeah. That could, that could definitely be too. Um, I want to tell you one more thing about this locked door that I actually thought was extremely interesting. And I don't think, it's been talked about much is so that locked door led to a fire escape, but apparently that fire escape was like extremely narrow. So while more people would have survived, not that many could have gotten out that way because you can only fit so many people on it. Do you know what I mean? And it, and I'm going to go out on a limb and assume the weight capacity probably could not hold that many people either during this time. Oh, even if they were one at a time in it yeah. and being patient? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No. Like, it probably would have just broken off and, you know, even, you know, <laughs> but um, in the end, out of the 200 workers on the floor, 49 of them burned to death or were suffocated by smoke. 36 died in the elevator shaft. I'm just going to assume they tried to jump down it and just land to safety. Uh, 58 died from jumping out of the ninth floor window, landing onto the sidewalk below. Two of the 58 actually survived the initial dump, but jump, but died from their injuries later. Uh, if you're kind of wondering where the fuck is the fire department here, um, apparently at this time the ladders did not reach beyond the sixth floor of any building, so it was impossible for them to help in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, that's just kind of, uh, I imagine at the time, that's about as high as you could get those ladders to go. Yeah, it's just so, not- unfortunate, you know, they probably didn't really, you know, I'm guessing they didn't really think about it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it probably was impressive at the time just to get the ladders to go up to the sixth So, Can you imagine you know, how rickety that motherfucker would be? Oh, definitely. Yeah, exactly. I- um. I'd be terrified to climb a six foot or six story 1900s wooden, probably moldy, rotten wooded ladder <laughs> up to up there. Yeah, you know, they had the same exact fire department as they did for this fucking factory. So <laughs> OSHA wasn't exactly a thing back then. No, so. no. A lot absolutely. of people. But it's so funny. A lot of people. You always hear people complaining about like, oh, OSHA's coming through or OSHA training or OSHA this. It's like, can you imagine what life would be like working without OSHA? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My God. Right. Jesus. Yeah. People would be blowing their eyeballs out, just spitting chemicals in their eyes constantly. Just oh, no safety yeah. fucking at all. Now, yeah. I f- we would all we'd all be dying of lead poisoning. basically, yeah. Just like they were in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. <laughs> all that serial le- killers. Rampant. I was going to say all that lead making a lot of serial killers. Yep. Oh, definitely. That's the <laughs> that's really gaining some popularity now. That theory. I mean, it was in everything, man. Yeah, exactly. 
Now, I don't know if you knew about this case. I thought this was pretty interesting. So we're going to get into deeper about Triangle Waste's negligence here. But this is a very underreported aspects of the Triangle Waste Company tragedy. A mere six months before the Triangle Waste fire, a very, very similar thing happened at Wolf Molson Undergarment Company in Newark, New Jersey. Again, a fire began on the third floor of the company and workers on the fourth floor were trapped. Six girls burnt to death and 19 others plunged to their deaths out the window. While they said 100,000 people protested this thing um, after it happened, not a single regulation was passed for workers' safety. If there had been, after this tragedy, perhaps triangle waste, the whole thing wouldn't have even happened. If anybody would have paid attention to this tragedy and done something, triangle waste might not have even happened. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, here's the problem, though. Um, I know you have 100,000 people who are poor. True. Very the politicians true. look at that and say, oh, there's 100,000 people who have a dollar each. Or there is one person who has $100,000. That Much is, easier to make him happy. So that it's the same thing very, that happens today. That is very true, Phil. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it's 100,000 people. Great. They, you know, everything's really, it's all just kind of monetized. It's, you know, who are the more important people? So really, you know, these two guys who are in charge of these factories, and then it's not just them, it's all of the other kind of big business owners. None of them want worker safety, workers' rights, anything like that. So even it's kind of thing about like can people now with taxes, the whole no new taxes. What about a tax that's not very much and it does something really good? No, no, no new taxes at all. So yeah. They just don't yep. want to hear about it. Those wealthy businessmen who are running these sweatshops didn't want to hear about any regulation. No. No. Like you said, how are they going to have their third vacation home? Like, it's insane yep. to think they couldn't They couldn't have another yacht. They couldn't, you know, have a harem of hookers, you know? It's just, we got to think about them sometimes, Phil. Yeah, it's kind of about, even like the environment, the uh, environmental kind of regulations and things that are kind of coming about in the last like decade. A lot of those things actually make it so that some of these companies are making more money because some companies have to conform to it, but also they're getting money from it from, you know, the government. Well, yeah, like cap and trade and like new technologies and like making technologies. The problem is a lot of those companies, even though they'll make more money off of it, they just don't want any new regulations to come in. So they'll fight something that's going to make them more money. Yeah. That sort of deal. I've noticed the lying about actually doing something is a uh, big thing too. Oh, especially now with all the woke stuff. So all they have to do is just on Instagram kind of put a flag up for a month. And now all of a sudden like, oh, that's us doing something. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, it's becoming with social media. It's becoming even easier because all they have to do is just hire you know, some kid out of high school to be their social media person, put up a few things here and there, and now they're doing something about the problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you can never in America anyway, you can never expect a, especially a corporation to actually give a fuck about any sort of cause or anything. 
Unless it makes some yeah. money. Unless it Unless makes, it makes some, some money. Yep. Yeah. If it makes some money, they will care. If it doesn't, they do not care. Or there's so much outrage that it, you know, it's paramount that they do something to survive. Then true. that sort of thing too. True. Very but. true. Very true. Now, let's get back to the Triangle Fire here. Obviously, immense outrage. People were very upset. Um, I I found this, well, I shouldn't say shocking, but Max and Isaac, what did they do? They immediately launched damage control advertising to protect their image. They wanted to pretend like these women didn't even die. They went immediately on damage control. But both Isaac Harris and Max Blank would be would find themselves being charged with second and third degree manslaughter charges. Both men were arrested, but paid the $25,000 bond and immediately hired one of New York's most expensive lawyers named Max Stewart, and he went to work dismantling any of the survivors' testimony. So they they basically did what corporations do now. Yeah. Um, nowadays, they wouldn't even charge the people who like owned or were in control of the company. They would just kind of make it be like, oh, well, you know, it's something that just kind of happened. That sort of thing. They they would but, try to yeah. I can definitely I can definitely see that uh, kind of hiring a like a, to go out and just either pay off or you know discredit anyone's testimony. I'm starting to wonder if they didn't find a way to pay off the jurors. I'm honestly not. When we talk about the trial, like mm. I'm well, let me tell you about it here. I'm I'm yeah. <laughs> I kind of think they did something because it seems a little fishy. But even though the fire uh happened earlier in the year, the trial didn't happen until December of 1911. They had more than a 100 witnesses give extremely emotional testimony that should have been damning for anybody. Uh Isaac Harris, you know, the hero that we all need to hear from he actually gave a very neat quote in uh for the jury he said quote i started to holler girls let's go up on the roof get on the roof and we all rushed and i cried to them to go up to green street stairs and at the time the smoke was very thick in the room there and it was very dark you see he's a hero he helped all these <laughs> girls escape. He did the best he could. Yeah, definitely didn't uh, push his way to the front at all, I'm <laughs> guessing. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing none of that happened at all. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> on December 27th, 1911, the jury was finally set to, del- to deliberate to decide what's going to happen to Max and Isaac. In less than just two hours two fucking hours the jury came back acquitting both of the men of any wrongdoing yeah that's kind of like if you ever watch um small town murder whenever the jury's out for you know less than two hours it's it's just long enough to do the paperwork and then they're back um i'm guessing that a large bag of money was probably delivered (laughs) to them so and the judge too so yeah, it, oh, it was yeah. probably never going to go against them. One of those situations. Jeez, you got 150 fucking dead people. You got 100 people crying for their family members who are dead and all this shit. 
and the jury decides in less than two hours that they didn't do anything wrong, and yeah, there's no way they were not paid off or something. Yeah, and especially, too, if this uh, lawyer is worth his salt, then he's going to kind of do a job of like forming the jury for what he wants. So he's probably, you know, going to stack it full of people that he thinks are going to agree that, oh, no, the owners of the factory, they're just making money. That's their only job is to make money. So it's not their fault. Yeah. Also, you give them cash and it's like, oh, I was going to vote with you anyway. But, (laughs) you know, what? now I get to buy a fancy car. You know, what's ironic? Um, I think what the lawyer did is he really leaned on the fact that this is a very modern, safe factory for the time, which wasn't saying much about the work conditions. You know what I mean? But they considered it a very modern, progressive working factory. Have you, did you hear about the buckets on the wall? Buckets of water we had. (laughs) So we're good. It's all good. Yeah. Our old apartment didn't even have buckets on the wall. You guys, (laughs) what are you bitching about? The buckets in the apartment were for shitting in. (laughs) (laughs) Now, after the, uh, after the trial, Max and Isaac, uh, they pretty much just went right back to operating Triangle Waste Company, but it never really found the success it initially had. Uh, When it kind of broke apart, Isaac eventually went back to being an independent tailor, probably not really needing to work with his mass wealth. Uh, Max continued to open up various clothing companies. He started another company called Normandy Waste Company and found, you know, light success there. Ironically, you can't even make this shit up. Max Blank, in 1913, two years after the tragedy, would be fined... $20 $20 as he, after he was found once again locking the doors at his new factory during working hours. So he did not give a fuck. Oh, no. Yeah, he didn't think he did anything wrong. Probably. <laughs> no. They probably, uh, I was also going to say this too. I just kind of thought about it, but like to get a, not about the $20 fine, to get a jury to even happens today. They kind of see rich people as like, oh, they have so much money, they must be good people. That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, there's that whole idea about like affluenza. If a rich person does something bad enough, and if they can actually get it to go to a court, the jury will see the rich people as like, well, they can't be that bad. They have all that money. You know? That is very true, That, sort of, that, that is sort very thing. true. Yeah. I, also, I, I wonder a $20 fine back then, that must have been like, a what, today's money, a couple... Like maybe a few hundred bucks, yeah. something like that. But I mean, for so. him, that's nothing. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Not right. even. Yeah. Uh, now, this this next part is um, I don't even know how to explain it. It's just fucked up. In 1914, even though the two of them were cleared of any criminal charges, there were still the civil suits from the families of the victims that. We're basically suing them for negligence or what have you. Uh, In the end, the men had to pay $75 for each victim that died in the fire, which ended up being a total of $10,500. Ironically, Isaac and Max received $400 per dead worker from their insurance payout. It netted them a whopping (laughs) $58,400. In sweet profit from the deaths of 100, 146 people 
and paying off the victims here, they made in the end $47,900. Ironic yeah, from the from the deaths of their workers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they actually gained quite a bit of money for these people dying. Here's the really weird twist here. The day, the day before the fire at Triangle Waste Company, the Nansent workers compensation law that had passed in 1909 granting workers worker compensation was actually found to be unconstitutional and was taken away (laughs) what the fuck man yeah the uh (laughs) sounds about right yeah yeah so um i don't know so i don't why are you getting four hundred dollars per dead worker so it sounds kind of like something that may have happened in the past. Um, yeah. A company actually can take in life insurance out on their workers. Uh, Walmart's one of the big ones that do it. Yeah. The really scummy companies will actually use the employee's own like paycheck, like money out of their own paycheck to pay for the insurance claim. If the if the employee dies, the family will ask the company like, oh, well, they have this life insurance. Uh, can we get that life insurance? Oh, and they'll be like, no, no, that was for the company. <laughs> so the company takes out a like a, a claim out on you, pretty much. Uh, yeah, I remember when I heard that in one, what's that director's name? I can't, Michael Moore. He talked yeah. about the Walmart, or no, was it him? Yeah, I think it was him. Talked about the Walmart yeah. life insurance thing. Just mm-hmm. scummy, man. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's pretty crazy that. Uh, well, I mean, you're not allowed to take out as a as a person. You're not allowed to take out a life insurance claim like out on someone else uh, because obviously it gives you an interest in their death. It's you know not a very good idea. But for some reason, companies are able to do it to protect themselves against like loss of work you know, whatever, whatever they, you know, whatever they bribe the politicians to, you know, put into a law or they wrote it for the politicians, whichever. Yeah, it's, it's kind of fucked up. Now, I'm going to just finish out this here where there's a little bit of a belief that Isaac Harris and Max Blank could have potentially wanted this fire to happen. Okay. Now, The popular belief is that the fire was started by someone throwing a cigarette into the waste bin that had all the clothing scraps. Um, Now, this is almost shocking to believe, but allegedly smoking in factories was illegal at the time, but smoking was so common and people smoked in factories anyway, nobody really paid attention. So it was something that happened. But here's what's kind of interesting. Prior to the big fire... Triangle Waste Company had a fire twice in 1902. Another company owned by the exact same two men called Diamond Waste Company burnt down twice, once in 1907 and once in 1910, and both times they were able to collect a mass sum of insurance money from these fires. So it kind of makes you wonder, did they want the fire to occur in 1911 because as we saw they made a pretty healthy sum based off the deaths of 146 people yeah i don't know about uh i don't know about that because they were in the building if they were taking if they took the day off and took their families out to you know uh 
wherever rich people went, you know, back then upstate or whatever, um, then I could totally see it if they were, but they were in the factory when the fire started and their families were there too. So I don't really know about that. Wouldn't it make it look less suspicious though for them? Definitely. Yeah. But rich people putting themselves in danger like that for a couple (laughs) of bucks. I don't really see it. Uh, They were making so much money at the time. That is true. Maybe they wanted the fire without employees being there, and then it kind of, nobody contacted the ninth floor. Oh, well, they thought that they would have been able to get out in time. Yeah, hopefully. maybe, yeah. Possibly, yeah. I don't know. Well, they, they, I mean. They just have a lot of fires in their history, which kind of makes you, like, what's going on, guys? Well, from listening to, like, Small Town Murder, they talk about whenever they do the town um, histories, there's always a huge fire around this time. Yeah. Uh, The things that buildings were made out of, also the regulations were terrible, also sprinkler systems either non-existent or not put into factories, you know, at the time. Uh, Fire was just a huge kind of, like, problem. You hear about, like, entire, like, cities being burned down by you know one single fire that starts during the dry season you can take out half the town i don't know if you knew this phil but this building was actually designed to be fireproof so structurally after this fire the structure was fine oh gotcha yeah okay just the inside so it it burned up just inside did it burn i have some of the images from it kind of brought up um let me look at what it looked like oh their uh their hoses looks like they could reach up to the so they had hoses floor. up to those top floors but it'd be pretty hard to hit the fire while people are actively dying of smoke inhalation you know what i mean oh yeah definitely i'm just saying for the building not burning um completely down yeah but yeah it looks like the building's made mostly out of like stone and Cement. So, yeah, I can see that um, you gotta, not being completely taken out by the fire. You got to remember, the building they moved into at the time was brand new. So they almost moved in right when it was built. And obviously, by the time of the fire, they had been there almost 10 years. So the building was yeah. only about 10 years old. But, yeah, they did say it was a fireproof building. Obviously, what's inside of it burnt up probably the sewing machines and cloth and stuff but structurally it's it's okay yeah all the textiles on the floor uh don't help but yeah it's it sounds like they never made them clean up the scraps on the floor so it's just a big mess of fucking scraps nobody ever cleaned them up yeah probably too busy telling them don't bother with the you know don't bother with the garbage just keep working keep spinning out you know keep producing yeah so yeah one of those situations uh they didn't have kids anymore to run around pick up scraps (laughs) and throw them back into the you know well i suppose it's not like a textile factory textile factories were kept pretty clean because all of the like loose thread and cotton was kind of picked up and thrown back into the the feeder ah that sort of situation yeah, yeah. yeah but i suppose if you have little scraps of cloth it's not like you can just make a shirt out of that scrap. No. So they no. probably don't care about it. No, definitely not. Um, obviously, you kind of mentioned, we were talking off the air, you know, you kind of, you know, you've heard a lot about this. I'm sure a lot of people have. Um, did you feel like there were some new tidbits of information you didn't know 
initially about uh, about this thing, Phil? About um, them getting the insurance payout. I had never heard that part. Um, I do remember learning that they didn't um, get really uh, found guilty of anything when they should have. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that so many people testified against them. Yeah, a lot of a lot of I read a lot of article, articles and he said it was about 100. Yeah, well, it's one of those situations where do you I mean, really, you're going to get a jury up there. Uh, a jury is made up of 12 people not intelligent enough to get themselves out of jury duty. <laughs> so they're probably going to be thinking all you have to do is argue. Well, it's not like they started the fire. So how could they be responsible for killing these people with fire? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. And I think, like I said, the locked door technically wasn't illegal at the time. Um, But I don't know. Obviously, like you said, this helped change a lot of laws. But from what I was reading, it took a long time. Oh, yeah. It was it was there was a lot of stuff that was built on top of each other. Um. Yeah, and just like you were talking about how those labor laws were made unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, any progress that was made, there was always, you know, old Supreme Court justices who were willing to overturn shit. Yeah, dismantle it. Yeah. I mean, we see this shit every day, right? Just (laughs) in America, you get these old codgers who don't agree with something and then it's unconstitutional and then... Yada yada yep. yada. So, but uh, pockets filled with bribe money. Yeah, I seen the uh, video of old Clarence Thomas enjoying a nice boat ride in a yacht. He seemed he seemed to be enjoying himself. <laughs> um, <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but uh, but all right, guys. I hope you enjoyed this little uh, travel back in time. I uh, you know I I love looking up pieces of information that I know about but don't know everything about and I thought uh, this is very sad but a very pivotal point of American history um, Phil if you if they want to contact us where can they do that they can hit us up on our email subliminaldpodcast at gmail.com uh, we love hearing everyone's uh, kind of opinion on episodes whether they liked it whether they hate it if you have some ideas for episodes that if for the future that'd be great too we love to hear them probably an even easier way to get a hold of us though subliminal deception podcast on ig uh same thing love to hear from everybody uh if you hear little tidbits about the episode that you think we maybe we got wrong or we forgot something let us hear that too uh cody has his own instagram that he looks at what's that cody you can follow me at Cody Sabub. Give me a follow. Send me a message. Send me a nice comment. Whatever you desire. Uh, the last thing we ask you guys to do is to log on to iTunes. Leave a show a five-star review. Doesn't particularly matter what you say. Just type in your favorite piece of Victorian-era fashion and hit five stars. We greatly appreciate everyone who's taking the time to do that. If you're a Spotify listener, it's even easier just hit five stars hit submit and then you are all done thank you to everyone who's taken the time to do that for us as well well guys i hope you enjoyed this little trip down capitalist history memory lane (laughs) we'll see you guys next thanks guys